But as he rode towards Folly Bridge, he knew nothing had changed. James tried to focus on those brief, blissful half-seconds of relief when the blades were up and out of the heavy water, the recovery before the drive. He tried to imagine the river's coolness, the balmy, soothing effect it would have on his burning skin. Each pull squeezed his lungs, his breaths coming as if they were the gasps of someone far away. But his heart was as loud as the engine of a motorcar revving too fast. The boat scythed through the water, parting it silently, its bow lean and narrow. He knew that, viewed from the bank, the motion would look effortless. Team rowing, done well, always looked like that. Human beings turned into a single mighty machine, all their energies harnessed towards a single objective. If you had selected the right men, the strongest and the best, the water seemed powerless to resist. Single skulls rarely looked so pleasing. A man on his own could not generate the same momentum or sense of order. James was certain his own rowing looked especially inelegant. His ruined left shoulder made sure of that. Fated now to be forever weaker than his right, his left arm could not keep up. Perfect symmetry was out of reach. He pictured his boat zigzagging its way down the river, even though he had been told a dozen times that it did no such thing. He gulped for oxygen, looking up as he did so. Folly Bridge was just visible in the distance. Once there, he would have rowed himself along the icy stretch to Ifley Lock and back three times, a distance of four and a half miles. His body was demanding to stop. He had already done his usual morning circuit, but he could not help thinking about the men his own age or younger, in combat on the continent, or the pilots preparing to defend the skies over England, giving their all for what the new Prime Minister had warned would be a Battle of Britain. With each stroke, he contemplated how feeble were his exertions compared to theirs, how, if they could carry on doing their part, the least he could do. But now the perennial shoulder pain suddenly sharpened, as if something had splintered. He wondered if perhaps a shard of bone had cracked out of place. The agony was unspeakable. James firmed his jaw against the pain. In a bid to distract himself, he forced his mind to recall what he had heard on the wireless last night. The main news remained Britain's sinking of the French fleet in Algeria. Typical Churchill, that. Bold and brazen with it. Unlike that damn fool Chamberlain, Churchill understood there was no room for messing around, no time for niceties. Now that Paris had been conquered, France's ships would fall into German hands. Better they were destroyed altogether. Not that the French saw it that way. They were furious, the recrimination still rumbling on. His shoulder was sending shock waves of hurt through him now. He refused to listen. What had come next? The BBC generally tried to begin the broadcast with something positive to offset the bad news that was to follow. What pill was the discussion of the sinking of the French fleet meant to sweeten last night? The agony tugged at his nerves, but he refused to succumb. That was it. The Channel Islands. Sark had surrendered to the Nazis two days after Alderney. The Channel Islands were now entirely under German rule. The idea was shocking. He had never been there, but he had grown up on the English south coast, knowing that Jersey was just a ferry ride away. The people there spoke English. In just the last few weeks, the swastika had been raised over Norway, France, Belgium, Holland, and now a little corner of Britain. Hitler was getting closer.
James shipped the oars to let the boat drift on the unruffled water, and let out what he thought was a gasp of relief. It was only when a flock of coots scattered wildly that he realised the sound he had made was a scream. A man on the towpath opposite turned suddenly, and then, alarmed, walked briskly away. James took himself to the bank, as close to the boathouse as he could manage, then hauled himself out onto dry land and braced for the most demanding moment in his morning routine. Bending low, he tugged at the loop of cord on the bow of the boat to bring the skull out of the water and onto his good shoulder. One, two, three, and with a strain that made him want to howl, it was out and up. He staggered the few yards to the boathouse and dropped the skull into its rack. Then he stood for a few seconds, catching his breath, gazing up at the sky. The glorious cornflower...